Dear beautiful, perfect Savior, thank you, God, for restoring us, Lord. Thank you for taking all the pieces of our lives and our shattered hearts, Lord, and the broken dreams we may have, Lord. We just thank you for picking up those pieces, for having hands big enough to, to be able to carry all those pieces, Lord. Thank you for putting us back together and making something beautiful out of what seemed hopeless. We thank you for that grace, Lord, that has saved us, redeemed us, restored us. We thank you for the love that you have for us, God. Lord, you are a beautiful Savior, a sweet, sweet Savior, and we thank you for that, Lord. And God, we thank you for loving us fiercely, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's our practice every week to uh, take communion together. A time to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins, but it's also an opportunity to do what the Apostle Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians, uh, and that is to examine ourselves, to take the time to look at where we are in our walk with God, to literally ask that question, how is it with my soul today? And this year we've opted to take on a series of questions that were originally designed by John Wesley, uh, we're taking a question and we're, we're dealing with it for two weeks in a row. We introduce it one week and we dwell on it and then we come back to it the next week and really just kind of let that, that question sink into our souls. So we've already looked at the question, is Jesus real to me? Not is Jesus real, but in what ways does his reality show up in my life? And then um, am I enjoying prayer? Is that just an experience right now in which I'm really finding that, that connection with God that he desires to have with me through prayer? We're going to move to the third question today. It's a little longer. It's a great question. Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Or in other words, are there times I feel some guilt and I go ahead and do what I'm going to do anyway? Now, guilt's a funny word these days. People don't really like the word guilt out in the world or in the church. In the world, there's a lot of talk about you know, having a, a good sense of self-esteem, and so guilt just muddies things up. And, and within the church, a lot of people talk about grace to the extent that it's kind of a cheap grace. Do whatever you want, God won't care. Everything gets forgiven anyway. But in reality, God has wired us in such a way. He's, he's given us a conscience that's in you, and the Spirit, every once in a while, taps that conscience. He'll tap that conscience, and he'll say, should you really be doing that? Is, that? is that really is that really the path you want to take? It's a beautiful part of God's design. And, and the Spirit will give us those taps from time to time to say, maybe you don't want to go there, or maybe where you're going, you want to pull back from that. Now, I admit to you that um, this whole concept of guilt, there are times that guilt is not guilt at all. We might call it false guilt. Times that somebody came up with a rule and said, do this or don't do that. And if you do this or don't do that, it would be sin. But it was a human rule nonetheless. It was not something God designed. Maybe you come from a family. I think a lot of our, our well, we all come from a family, but maybe you come from a family where, where there was a lot of guilt imposed about things that were not a matter of right or wrong. It's just, this is the way our family does this. And you don't dare do something else. Even though it was not something expressed in the Bible is right or wrong, you just you still feel that sense of, I shouldn't do that. That's more of a false skill. We need to know the difference between the two. Even in religious systems. I grew up in a, in a very strict uh, religious background growing up where if this is where sin was, they'd set up a guardrail out here. And they'd say, don't do this either. Now, that's, a, I guess, a great way of protecting from going there. But then they declared doing this sin, too. So it was not only don't watch bad things on TV, but don't own a TV. And if you don't own a TV, you can't watch bad things on TV. And if you own a TV, it's a sin. You see the difference? Some of you grew up in backgrounds where, where you were told, for example, as we move into this, this particular season of Lent, um, there are certain things you don't eat on Friday. 
And, and to this day, if you pull up to you know, McDonald's on a Friday and order a Big Mac, you're like, oh, you can just feel the oppression of putting that theoretical beef in your mouth. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a, it's, I'm sorry, it's a, false, it's a false guilt. It's a false guilt because that was a human, a human rule. It's not something found in the Bible. But if it is found in the Bible and the Spirit is giving us that tap, we need to listen. And here's the thing that happens. I don't know if you've noticed this. It certainly happened from my own personal experience. There's something that I know is wrong, and the first time I do it, I feel so guilty I can't stand it. But I do it again. And the next time I go, ugh, I probably shouldn't be doing that. And the third time I go, hmm. And by the fifth time, I'm like, good to go. Good to go. And we might say, well, maybe, maybe, we just, maybe it wasn't a sin in the first place. Maybe, maybe it wasn't, or maybe this. Maybe we're allowing our conscience to get hardened. Maybe what's happening is what the Bible refers to as a seared conscience. We have so much scar tissue on our conscience that we don't feel the pain anymore. I always kind of laugh when I'm working in the kitchen. I'll grab something, and, and I know that it's hot, but I've touched enough hot things through the years that my hands are like oven mitts, and I don't really need them. And, and my kid will go grab the same thing and like, yikes, how can you do that? My hands are a little bit seared, right? That's the way our conscience can become if we consistently violate our conscience with something we know that is wrong. So over the next two weeks, we sit with this question. Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy. We might even switch it a little bit to say, do I insist on doing something about which my conscience used to be uneasy? But I don't feel quite what I used to anymore. So we take now a minute to be quiet with the question, to sit in silence. I love silence. It's a great place to let a question like that just kind of settle in. And then when we're done with the silence and done with that time of self-reflection, we'll move to one of the four stations around the room, two in the back, two in the front, bread and cup are there, and celebrate the forgiveness that you can know through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just say one thing before we move on from this, and that is that I really believe that silence is a great tool for a question like we just asked. We, we, we hear things in silence that we don't tend to hear in all of the noise of our lives, and we, you know, we practice this silence for a minute here together, but I'd encourage you to take some time for just silence at home, not, not filling it with words, but just spending the time to sit and to think and to reflect. Now, admittedly, um, let's say you decide, you opt, you're going to start uh, practicing five minutes of silence a day. For some of you, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have checked your watch ten times in five minutes. It's not an easy practice. Um, my, recently, I was decided to um, get an electric toothbrush. Uh, you know, I've always been one of these people that I, I brush my teeth basically for the sake of freshening my mouth not necessarily to clean my teeth, so... And I noticed that everybody else in the family takes a lot longer time to brush their teeth than mine, and, and my teeth are worse than everybody else. Hmm, just a thought. But anyway, so I get this electric toothbrush, and it's got this setting that I'm supposed to brush my teeth for four minutes. I mean, are you serious? It's eternity. I'm just like, you know, going... Okay, so then I start taking this out a little further. Eight minutes a day seven days a week. I'm spending almost an hour a week brushing my teeth. There are better things to do with my life, right? Holy moly. But anyway, four minutes. The first time I had that thing in my mouth for four minutes, I was just like, oh my word, this is impossible. Impossible. I suspect that's the way it'll be for some of you with silence. Do it. Try it. Try to spend some time in quiet with a question like this one. Do I insist on doing something about which my conscience is uneasy and see where God takes you. So, transition. Big game tonight. Some call it super. Once it is done, the coaches and team leaders will gather at Mike's to give their assessment of the game, to put their spin on it, especially if they lost. Ever wonder what it would be like if we did this at church? 
What, what, if we, what if we did it all? You know, the parking, the greeting, the childcare, the kids' programs, the lights, the media, the songs, the sermon. And then when it was all done, when every ounce of blood and sweat and tears were spent, when it was all left on the field, we did a press conference to sum up the game. This is what it may look like. I just feel like we need to clean up some unforced errors. That's it. I mean, I walk out on stage and my mic's not on. I mean, that's just a simple thing we talk about in staff meetings and we practice during the week. And then on Sundays, we can just can't perform. I mean, I don't know what you more you want me to do. I feel like I close my sermons the same way every Sunday. As I close, the worship team's going to come out. Does the worship team come out? No. I feel like I finished strong. Honestly, I just got to get back and take a look at some of the film, get some things for my sermon corrected for next week. I mean, attendance was down, so I feel like that hurt my confidence a little bit coming out of the gate. But I mean, from a number standpoint, we did okay. It looks like we got uh, five applause breaks. We got three amens and one mm, preach. So like, I mean, from a numbers game, I feel like we're doing well. I just got to do a better job. I mean, I'll take responsibility for my sermon. It wasn't the best thing I've ever done. I had a hilarious story about my kids to start, but then Honestly, the scriptural tie-in was not great. I mean, I'm just not comfortable performing in this system. We're doing an eight-week sermon series. Honestly, it should have wrapped up at about five. We're doing this, like, Stranger Things spinoff called Jesus is a Life Changer Things. Yeah, grammatically, it literally doesn't even make any sense. I mean, I'm a little banged up. I got a sore throat. I'm not 100% either, but I don't, I, no excuses. I knew I needed to come out here and perform on Sunday. I mean, who else is going to preach? The youth pastor? Absolutely not. I mean, last time I had that guy preach, he was quoting Chance the Rapper lyrics. I mean, we just can't have that. I mean, we're we're doing a good job as a team getting plenty of people to come forward for prayer. We're just not getting salvations. We're not getting the conversions when we need to, bottom line. If anybody has any questions, uh, I'll take those now. Just slip your hand up all over this room. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, I'm not very competitive, but I have never received an preach in my life. Come on. Come on. I love the youth pastor comment. That's great. Who's going to preach? Youth pastor? Absolutely not. And who is this Chance the Rapper this guy talks about? Some guy that works at Walmart at Christmas. I don't know. Anyway, fun to laugh. Fun to have fun with this. It's a good time. God loves when we smile. He loves when we laugh. And part of what's great is that that's actually part of the image of God stamped on us. That, that's, that's God. God's image. You know, sometimes we think the funny stuff, that's sin. No, that's God. That's God in us, the image of God stamped upon us. So, hey, Sherry, can you walk over and give us some light? That'd be great in the room. Oh, Dave's there. I couldn't see you, Dave. Sorry. That'll be in tomorrow's film. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> hey, we're five weeks into a six-week series on discernment. This jet has been on a nice long journey, and you can now feel us starting to Take the descent. We're, we're heading on down. And uh, I think it's been, it's been a great time to be able to talk about this gift that God has given us to be able to discern. So we're, we're going to move now to, to another piece. And that is, that is looking at the way the word of God. How do, how, do we, how do we use discernment when it comes to our approach to the word of God? And, and really, there are two things we're looking at here. We're looking at the way discernment, the way the word of God impacts our discernment, as well as the discernment we need to bring to understanding and knowing the Word of God. So both are important. And today that's where we'll be spending some time is just looking at how do we use the discernment God has given us to understand the Word of God better. We know full well, we've already talked about it, that this, this book this book, it's vital for our lives in order to grow in discernment. If we decide, for example, to uh, not read this book, if we decide to not buy into it, if we decide to not live under the authority of it, uh, we can't grow in biblical discernment. This is the book that shapes us and forms us. We said it's our catechism. It is our teacher. The Bible informs us, and as it informs us, it forms us. It makes us into the person God desires we saw that quote a few weeks ago that, that we can have the problem of, of looking at our world and allowing our world to form our theology rather than the Bible and God to form it. And, and the quote said, because once you start adjusting your theology to match up to your reality, the reality you see in front of you, it's an infinite progression. And so we want to make sure that the truth is forming our lives. 
Not that, not that our view of the world is forming, is being formed by what's around us, but it's being formed by the Word of God. So we're using this discernment in one, on one hand in order to be formed by the Word of God, but we also use discernment in our approach to the Word of God to understand it. Some people will make kind of this bold statement. The Bible is straightforward. It is easy to understand. It is black and white. I agree with the sentiment of the statement, but having said that, there are certain parts of the Bible you go and you read and you kind of go, huh? I mean, I don't get it. What's going on here? There are some things in the Bible that don't make sense without some digging. It might require cultural context. It might require some archaeological understanding. It might require a historical background. What this requires is discernment. Discernment to understand what's going on in the Bible. So let's start talking about how we use discernment as we approach the Bible. Here's the first thing you need to know. A discerning person knows that the Bible is knowable. You look at this book, and even even if you don't know what's going on in here right now, a discerning person understands this. God gave this to us to be known. And God gave us his word so that we can know him through his word. He is knowable. His word is knowable. I want to introduce you to a great word. You may have never heard it before, or you may have heard it and you know, kind of twisted it a bit. It's the word perspicuity. Perspicuity. We're going to go ahead and say that one together just because it's fun, right? One, two, three. Perspicuity. Oh, say it again. Perspicuity. Your tongue has done a great workout now. You can rest it for the rest of the day. What does that mean? Well, here's the dictionary definition. It means to be clearly expressed and easily understood. I get a kick out of the fact that that definition uses a word that's so hard to understand. But it's clearly expressed and easily understood. It's lucid. A synonym, a synonym for perspicuity might be clarity. The Bible, by nature, is clear. So again, you might be thinking, yeah, I read the book of Revelation. It's not clear. What are you talking about? I had the privilege when I was going through seminary of studying systematic theology under a, a man named Wayne Grudem. I still remember the day he talked about Scripture being perspicuous. It's the first time I'd ever heard that word in my life in 1987. And he more recently did a lecture on it that's found in writing. I actually have the address up on the screen. It's also on the Bible app, and you can can access that. And probably rather than typing it in right now, if you need it, go ahead and take a picture. That's fine. Just blur me out and get the the address. But but if you want to learn more about this, it's about six pages long, and just gives you an idea of what, what does it mean when we say the Bible is clear. I want to summarize a bit of his teaching. The Bible is clear in that anyone, literally anyone, with effort, time, and the instruction of the Holy Spirit can grow in the understanding of what the Bible says. Anyone. Now, what that does not mean is I get one of these, I open it, and voila, I understand everything just by opening it, right? What it does mean is that the meaning of this book is not reserved for professionals. The understanding of this book is not reserved for priests, pastors, and people who spend time in seminaries studying it. That's important. Some of us came from backgrounds that stressed that you needed a spiritual authority, someone in spiritual authority to read and interpret the scripture for you. In fact, you were encouraged not to even touch it. You'd mess it up. Don't even go there. Let a professional do it for you. Let them do the heavy lifting for you. That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. Anyone can understand what's going on in the Bible. And notice I said can. The issue of clarity Or perspicuity is potential. You can, given certain conditions, you can understand what the Bible says. What are the conditions? Well, first and foremost is study. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You You could summarize that as study. Study to show yourself as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. How do we get to know the Bible? Well, we get to know it through study. The fact is, there is effort involved. You've got to do some work to understand what's going on. You don't don't just skim a passage and then take a stab at the meaning. 
We need to study in order to correctly handle the word of truth. But the fact is, everybody here that has the ability to study has the ability to understand what the Bible is saying. So that's important for all of us. The Bible is perspicuous. It is knowable by all of us. So if we think this through, here's what we see. Learning the Bible is a lifelong process. You will learn it all of your days. In fact, on this earth, you will never fully arrive. You'll never fully get there. You just keep unfolding and digging and learning more. And part of what's beautiful about the Word of God is a passage that you read in your 20s and studies in your 20s when you get to your 40s and then your 60s. It's not that the meaning changes, but boy, does the application change through the years as well as the understanding as you come to different stages of life and understand different things about what the Bible is having to say. It's a lifelong learning process. Now, Here's the cool thing. In the process, you have a teacher. The teacher in the process is the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 13 says, But when he, he's talking about the Spirit of God, and Jesus is speaking, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak his own words. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. The Apostle Peter tells us that the Holy Spirit is the author He's the author of this book. He's the one that gave this to us. Human hands and human hearts were employed to convey God's word to us, but the inspiration was of the Holy Spirit. Uh, What what that means, in a sense, is that if if the Spirit is the one that wrote it, if the Spirit is the one that uh, uh, inspired it, then the Spirit is also the one that helps guide an understanding of what's going on here. So if the Spirit is the writer, wouldn't it be great to actually know an author and, and you've got some things in a book that you're reading and you're going, I just don't get it. And you're able to sit across the table from the author and say, please tell me what you meant in chapter 3. Well, we get that opportunity all the time with the Holy Spirit where we're basically able to say, please tell me what in the world you meant in chapter 3. Let me add one other thing. I believe our understanding increases as we obey what we learn. Obedience is an important aspect of the learning process. It cannot be avoided. There is a proportional impact between what I know and what I live. And that impacts my learning. Why is is that the case? Well, when we as believers choose to ignore the truth we've learned, what do we do? We inhibit the Holy Spirit. We literally inhibit his work in our lives. The Bible says we grieve the spirit. We quench the spirit. We actually, we actually inhibit the ability for him to work in our lives. But as we obey, he continues to light the path before us. So good news, you can understand the Bible. You don't need me to explain it all to you. You don't have to have a professional with you at every moment saying, that's what that meant. You don't have to have that. But here's the thing. You've got to be willing to do the hard work of study. You've got to be open to the Spirit's guidance. And once you learn something, you have to be willing to live it. You have to be willing to put it into practice. And as you do, the meaning will unfold to you. So we need to study. What does that mean in light of discernment? Well, a discerning person knows what they're holding in their hands. Uh, do you know what you're holding in your hands when you're holding the Bible? Do, do, you, have, do you have any idea of, of the nature of this book and what it's all about? It's a book. I mean, it looks like a book, right? And yet, having said that, if you were to open up the table of contents, you'd find it's almost more like a library than a book. It, it's, a, it's a book full of books. It's a book full of books and full of letters, and in fact, it's divided into two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. And then you have like different, you know, if you, if you were to look at a Jewish Bible, there's lots of old, there's no new. It's only Old Testament. We have 39 books in our Old Testament. If you're going to go to a Jewish Bible, uh, I think they have about 24. Why is that? They have all the same Bible that we do in the Old Testament, but they don't have a first and second Samuel. They just call it Samuel. They don't have an Ezra and Nehemiah. They just call it Ezra and Nehemiah and, and smash them together. So you have that. Or some of you came from a Catholic background. Your first time to church, you come in, you got your big old Catholic family Bible, you smack it down in your lap, and I'm starting to talk, and you're looking, and you're like, 
There are a lot more books in this, New Test- in, in this Old Testament that there are in the, in, in the church I'm attending right now. What's going on with that? Well, the, the Catholics included something called the Apocrypha. What's, what's amazing is that even before you open the cover, you've got to know which one you bought. What do I have here? What do I have here? Do, do I have a Hebrew Bible? Do I have, do I have this Bible? What, what do I have here as I'm handling this? So let's not get too bogged down in this. Let's assume we're going to go ahead and take this Bible, this book of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. On one hand, like we said, it's a library, a book full of books and letters. Get this. It was written over a period of about 2,000 years by 40 different authors on three continents who wrote in three different languages. On the other hand, the Bible is a single book with a single story told by a single author. And the author is not human, but divine. The author is the Holy Spirit. It would be kind of a fun project if Southfield were to say, we're going to write our own Bible, which, by the way, would make us a cult, and so we won't be. But anyway... Let's say that we said we were going to write our own Bible, and, and we just said, here's what we're going to do. Go home and write a book, or a letter, or a poem, and let's see how that all comes together. And so we come together the next week, and we kind of take all of our stuff, and we, mash, we even get a leather cover for it. And you start to read, and you know, the first book is called The Opinions According to Lorraine. And you're reading through that, and you're going, that's wild, wow, that's she got some wild stuff going on in her head. Woo! And then we go, you know, we go to the bombastic gospel of Bob. And, we, and we're looking at that, and it's all about, like, running and reading. And, you know, and Lorraine was saying you should sit on the couch all day. And, and Bob's saying you should get up and run. And, like, holy cow, we're only two books in. This is going to get good. And then you have all the information from the front row, which could only be wild, right? I mean, think about this. 2,000 years, 40 authors, three continents, several languages, and there's a consistent theme throughout the whole thing. How can it help but be one author, one story, one spirit, inspiring all these people to write? 2 Peter 1, 20-21 says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came by the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. This wasn't, this wasn't a human saying, i got a good idea, let's write a Bible. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Now you may look and say, well, that's about prophecy. The whole Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. That literally means God breathed. God breathed his words. And what does it say? It is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. I love the fact that it immediately moves beyond information to saying basically, this book is to be lived. This isn't, this isn't just Bible trivial pursuit. Look at all the things I know. This is, this is what I'm to live because these are the very words of God. So it is 66 separate books and letters, but it is one book. And this is what's referred to as the unity of Scripture or the unity of the Bible. It is a singular story with a single message. Now, think about this for a moment. My daughter-in-law is a Harry Potter fan. She's actually read the books. I just watch movies. So, you know, I just, yeah, anyway. So I guess there are eight of these books all together. And uh, what if I were to borrow book four from her and say, I'm going to read chapters 4, 5, and 6. And after reading this, I'm going to declare myself an official expert on Harry Potter. Not only that, I'll have a full understanding of everything. Everything that is about this. You can't call it a trilogy. Trilogy times 2 plus 2. Anyway, I'm going to understand everything there is. You'd say, that's nuts. How in the world can you know everything about this story if you only know this much? Think about how little of the Bible sometimes we we keep going to again and again and again, and we kind of skip all the rest of it. And we, and we think we've got this solid understanding of the Bible because I've got these, this handful of well-worn pages, but I kind of ignore everything else that's going on in the rest of the book. We, we need to know what's going on in the whole book, the whole book. It's a singular story. It's a story that tells us everything from, from human reje- re- rejection of God to redemption of humans by God. 
And the story is being conveyed through real-life characters and events recorded by human authors, inspired by the human spirit, Holy Spirit. We, we can understand this, but as we do, we have, to, we have to take the time to study the whole thing, to understand what's going on in all of the Bible. Now, as we do this, we need to take three things into account. Three words, and I didn't purposely alliterate. This is just the way it works. We need to take into account context, content, and connection. So as you're reading the Bible, see, what we're real good at is, here's my favorite verse. And that's kind of the extent of our Bible understanding, right? I have this favorite verse right here. And they're like a whole bunch of others. And all those others fall in the context of all the rest. We need all of it, right? So, so as you're understanding what's going on in this book, as you're understanding context, you need to understand what is the setting of this part of the story. If I'm reading a verse or a chapter or a book, what is, what's it all about in light of the bigger story? I may need to understand some history. I may need to understand some culture. I need to understand where it falls in the text. The Bible, the primary... Um, the primary unit of meaning or understanding in the Bible is a paragraph. I can't just pick a verse out of a paragraph and say, this is what I think this means. I've got to understand how it fits with the paragraph. If you're a parent, you understand this. Your children have picked verses out of your paragraphs before, right? You can have an Oreo. <laughs> Wait, read the paragraph. Read the chores you're supposed to do before you eat the Oreo. Read about brushing your teeth for four minutes after you eat the Oreo. It doesn't just say eat the Oreo, right? But that's what we do. We pick our favorite verse and say, this is, no, you got to understand it in light of where it fits into the whole paragraph and the whole book and the whole book overall. So you've got, you've got contents. What about content? What kind of literature is this? You know, if it's a book full of 66 books and letters, what you have is different kinds of literature. And we understand different kinds of literature are read differently. I would hope that you read the Tribune, for example, differently than you would a tabloid at the end of the grocery, uh, grocery aisle. There are different kinds of literature. Look at the Bible. I mean, you have, you have narrative. That's just stories. You have history. You have poetry. You have wisdom. You have prophecy. You have apocryphal literature, Revelation. You have the Gospels, and the Gospels have some history. They have some teaching. They have some parables. You have epistles, letters that are, that are didactic. They're teaching and they're instruction. All these things are understood differently. So let me give you an example. A person will go to the book of Proverbs, and they see this wonderful verse. Train up your child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so we look at that and say, God has promised that if I, if I parent right, my kid will turn out right. And so when our kid doesn't turn out right, we figure, well, either God broke his promise or I didn't parent right. Except a proverb isn't a promise. A proverb is a statement about the way life normally works. And sometimes it doesn't. You need to know that about a proverb before you start collecting them as promises. History, narrative. You may read historically that David committed adultery. Hmm, fair game, going for that. No, it's, it's a statement of what he did. That doesn't mean that we go ahead and do the same. You've got to understand the kind of literature you're looking at as you're reading to understand what in the world's going on. You, go, you come over to those epistles, they're instruction. You come to the Ten Commandments, that's not just allegory. You know, ah, I can take it if I want it. That's pretty, you know, don't kill, period, done, over. Each are to be interpreted a little bit differently. So, you look at these things. Context, content, connect. And the third one is connection. How does it fit with the rest of the story? How does it fit with, this is one story and pieces of that entire story. How does it all fit together? And some of you are going right now, holy moly, this is kind of complicated. I think I'll, I think I'll, just, I'll, I'll just leave it to the pastor. Let him figure it out and I'll just go on with my life. You know what, it is hard work. And everything you know has been hard work. Some of you have jobs. You tell me about your jobs, and I'm like, oh, my word. If I had to do your job, the world would be in shambles. I don't know what you do. Imagine any of us going to the other person's job tomorrow, just showing up and saying, what's this lever? I mean, you got to know some stuff, right? you got to know. You, you took the time to learn. 
and we need to take the time to learn what the Bible has to say. And the part, cool part is, perspicuity says, with some work, you can know what the Bible has to say. So, I love the fact, part of, part of what we're doing when, when we're using discernment, we come to the Bible and we're, we're looking at different situations, different things that are going on in there. And, and you know, we talk about the fact that, that sometimes things are written, for example, in culture. They're written in culture. And you read some of, the, some of the cultural examples. And it might be, you know, you might look at the Bible and say, it never mentions an iPhone, so I guess I can do whatever I want with it. Or you look at the Bible and it says something about eating meat offers to idols. And you're like, I don't know, maybe that's that cheap stuff at Jewel, but I don't, I don't think I've ever eaten idol meat. Or it taught, there are these passages about slavery and you're like, well, I'm not a slave. I don't know any slaves, so I guess I can just skip that one. What, what, what's beautiful about the Bible, and I think people really miss this, is that God had the wisdom to write the Bible within the context of culture. He didn't, just, he didn't just write theoretical ideas out here. He read them, he actually, he actually spoke them within the context of the culture that existed at the time. And he said, here's what I want you to do with your discerning mind and heart. I want you to figure out the timeless principle behind this. How does it apply to you? And so just because the Bible doesn't refer to a particular piece of technology that exists today doesn't mean he's not given us instruction for that. And just because the Bible is referring to idol meat or slavery doesn't mean that even those passages don't have some application to us. Uh, the passage on idol meat is talking about activities that we take on that might cause someone newer in the faith uh, to, to veer off the faith. Slavery, I'm not a slave, but I am an employee. And I might have employee, uh, employees. How do I treat them? Uh, what do I do? So there are these timeless principles that is, as we're willing to take the time to discern what the Bible has to say, oh, we can, we can just learn some really, really amazing things. So, oh my word, there's, there, there's so much more we could say about this. I mean, we, we, need to, we need to understand what's going on in the Bible, and we can understand what's going on in the Bible. One of the things a discerning person needs to do is know the best way to study the Bible. There are actually, there, there, there are good ways to study the Bible, and there are poor ways to study the Bible. Let me give you another, another uh, expensive word here, and that's the word exegetical, or exegetically. I'm telling you what, you show up to our work and you throw out the word perspicuity and exegetical, you're going to get a raise. Go for that. Go for that, okay? Studying the Bible exegetically, what does that mean? Let me give you the opposite. The opposite would be that I, I have an opinion... And I go to the concordance and I look up verses and try to find something that reinforces my opinion. And then we say, see, certainly true. I found a verse that seems to imply what I'm thinking. An exegetical approach to the Bible is just the opposite. We come, we come to the Bible as much as is humanly possible without our bias, without our preconceived notion, and we ask, what's this passage saying? Now, let's admit it that's not humanly possible to do because we bring our biases with us everywhere. So what do we need to do? We need to know our biases. We need to know our opinions, right? But we come, we come to the Word of God as objectively as possible and say, what's going on here? Um, Blake Hersberger is my son's uh, college roommate down in Texas, and he's, he's a Bible major, and so you know, he, he kind of keeps me on, on speed dial or speed text, I guess it would be. Every once in a while, he'll kind of whip out these Bible questions that I'm sure are part of a test, and I'm trying to give him an A. Anyway, um, <laughs> one arrives the other day. Is the Bible's meaning found in the author's intent, the text itself, or the reader's response? Oh, that was a cool question. I knew what the answer was. Should I let you sit with it for a week? <clears throat> We're always trying to figure out what the author meant. What was the author saying? What was the author saying here? And so, and so it's almost as if we're, we're, we approach the text and we're, and we're saying, Paul, what in the world did you mean? What were you trying to say to us? And we're having to understand the context in which he wrote, the culture in which he wrote, all these things in order to get at not what do I think and therefore want Paul to say, but Paul, what did you say because you're under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and I want to grow in the desires of God. The polar opposite is, 
I know what I think. Let me go find a verse that backs it up. And that just leads to some really, really weak theology as well as living. We don't draw a conclusion and then look for proof for our conclusion. That's backward. That's lack of discernment. We want the opposite. What does the Bible say? What was the author saying? And remember, ultimately, the author is the Spirit. What was the Spirit saying to me in this? There is a difference, too, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a bad thing to do this. We just need to know the difference. There's a difference between reading the Bible exegetically and reading the Bible devotionally. Some of us read the Bible devotionally. I think a lot of us read the Bible devotionally. What does that mean? We, we pick up the day, we, we pick up the Bible that day, we read a, a chapter or a few verses or whatever, and we look to it for instruction and inspiration. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. But we do need to understand that when we take a, a devotional approach, uh, we, we can tend to bring our biases more. than if, It's amazing how sometimes you were planning on doing something in a particular day, you weren't really sure about it, but then you read a couple of verses and you went... Look at that. The Bible said I should go do it. Well, is that what the Bible said? Uh, maybe God's using his word that way to inspire you to do something, but there's a difference between a devotional and exegetical approach. Both are very different. We need to know that, okay? So, let me give you one other. A discerning person knows what they bring to the Bible. So it's one thing to know what I'm holding in my hand. It's another thing to know my hand and the body, mind, and heart connected to it. What's going on with me? So, when I'm reading the Bible, when I'm studying the Bible, here are a few things I need to know about me. And there are probably a whole bunch of things I need to know about me, but here are a few, okay? Without getting political, I need to know my worldview. Am I, am I politically liberal or politically conservative? Now, here's the thing. If I'm politically conservative, I'm going to love that verse in Titus that says, don't work, don't eat. I'm going to be all over that. If I'm more politically liberal, I'm going to be finding all these verses that talk about feeding the poor. Both verses are in the same Bible. Both are in the same. You, you can't say, I like this one, not that one. Both are in the same Bible. Both form us. So we got to know. We got to know our worldview. And politics is just one aspect of our worldview. We need to know um, our context. We're, we're 21st century Westerners reading a book that is an ancient Eastern book. So yesterday I'm at a conference, and they're reading a passage from Solomon, Song of Solomon. I don't read Song of Solomon very often. Inspirational. All right, so. Oh, can I get back there? What did I do? I, this electronic stuff makes me crazy. Oh, don't be gone. Okay, so anyway. Song of Solomon, chapter 4. And Solomon is talking about the beauty of this woman. Your teeth are like sheep. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I'm feeling, I'm feeling Valentine's inspiration coming on here. Your teeth are like sheep, unbrushed and still furry. I mean, what, what do you mean your teeth are like sheep? I don't get it. You won't get it. Until you do some exploring to figure out what in the world's going on there. We need to understand we're 21st century Americans. We're moderns. And this is not a modern book. And we need to understand what in the world's going on there. Finally, though, I need to know my agenda. What am I trying to defend? What am I trying to prove? Or am I just trying to understand what God has to say? Um, a discerning person knows that this book informs us and forms us. The information makes us into who we are if we choose to obey. I love what David wrote in Psalm 119. It's 176 verses long, and it's divided into sections headed by the Hebrew alphabet. You may choose to take one of those 8 to 10, pa 10 verse passages a day and just mull over them as you're thinking about your relationship with the Word of God. But he says things like, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. This book guides me guides me. You may feel overwhelmed. I'd encourage you with the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This command I am giving you today is not too difficult for you. It is not beyond your reach. 
It is not kept in heaven so distant that you must ask who will go up to heaven and bring it down so we can hear it and obey it. It is not kept beyond the sea so far away that you must ask who will cross the sea and bring it to us so we can hear it and obey it. No, this message is very close at hand. It is on your lips and in your heart so you can obey it. It's accessible. With discernment, it is accessible. And so I encourage you, access it. Spend time getting to know God in his word. Our servers are going to come now and receive the offering. And uh, as they do, got some slides for you. So you may want to go ahead and pull your phone out right now. And uh, you, you got your email already earlier today. It's called the links and it's got the date on it. If you don't get the links yet, you can go to our website, southfieldchurch.com. And at the very bottom of the page, you see a number of little icons, the one either all the way to the right or some of your phones will actually put it on a second line. Go ahead and click that and look what happens. A form comes up, first name, last name, email. Go ahead and submit that, and next week we'll be sure that you are receiving the links. So this is what the email looked like today. If you don't have yours up and looking at it, the first is to say the ladies' retreat is this coming Saturday, which means registration closes Tuesday at midnight. Get signed up. You need to get registered for that. And the second one is about the retreat as well. This is how guys can go to the ladies' retreat. So... Basically, we made a commitment years ago, we, the guys of our church, to say, we want to make sure that the women of our church know they are loved. We want to do everything we can to serve them with the hugest of servants' hearts. And so we got involved, for example, in, in serving their lunch, in making sure that cleanup happens throughout the day so that they don't have to be paying attention to that. Coming back at the end of the day, doing the cleanup after all the work they've done, they don't need to be doing that too, right? So there's a link uh, you see, guys, I'd like to serve at the retreat. Lunch, keep up means maybe you'll stick around during the day, collect garbage. Katie Kuchar needs a table moved. You're going to do that. Or clean up at 4 o'clock. We come back and help clean up. If you'll do that, you click let us know Let us know here. That's going to take you to an email to me. And we're going to organize this. We're not going to have the ladies having to even do the organizing part. But we're going to make sure this piece of serving is, is done for them. Student ministries. Well, that is, it's so easy and it's so much fun. So, guys, if you haven't done Don't that. Don't tell them it's easy. It is, it is hard labor. It is difficult. Come on, earn For your those points. of us who are more experienced in, in life. Uh, yeah, might be. But anyway, no, get signed up. It's fun. Uh, speaking of signing up, we are using Remind for all of our student ministry updates. That's uh, for Revive and Refuge. We have two different groups. Uh, for, for sending text messages out. We found it worked perfectly with Arctic Blast last weekend. So we all you, decided when we were gone. We loved that. Great job. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's awesome. It, it, took me, it, it took me half a decade to realize how easy this is. So, uh, yeah, uh, we're going to be using that for everything. Uh, there will be maybe not a weekly text, but so, somewhere in that range. So if you want to stay up to date on what students are doing, uh, schedule changes, anything like that, you need to get signed up for Remind. These uh, flyers are <clears throat> out at the welcome desk, and they literally walk you through step-by-step step how exactly to do it. If you have any questions, you can come ask me. You're going to be getting updates through Remind about some of the upcoming things we have. On Valentine's Day, our junior hires at Refuge are going to have a Nerf War, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, then that following Friday, on the 16th, we're going to feed my starving children in Aurora with both, stu- uh, with both junior hires and high schoolers. There are about 30 spots left. Uh, we're really making a push to make sure that students fill those spots. So if you know that you're a student or you have a student who's going who you haven't signed up yet, please talk to me. Uh, I want to help you help make the registration po- process as easy as possible for you. Uh, and then if we have any spots left over, I know I've had a, a bunch of people come up and ask, hey, can I go? Like, that sounds like something I'd really like to do. The answer is yes, contingent on how many students we have signed up. So, again, it's a student-first thing. If we have spots available that we still need to fill, yes, I will contact those of you who, uh, who would like to come along. We might ask you to help drive some students, if that's okay. Uh, but, yeah, that's going to be a really cool thing. But, again, it's two weeks away, so please uh, get signed up as soon as possible. Finally, on the 18th, so it's a packed week. 14th uh, is the Refuge Nerf Night, then Friday, and that following Sunday on the 18th, Revive is having a luau. We are escaping this stupid cold weather, and we're going to have a lot of fun here um, with that. So, awesome. yeah. 
And then today, high school is not doing tonight. They're right, doing yeah, we're not going to fight the Super Bowl because uh, we know we're imperfect humans and we would lose to the Super Bowl. So uh, 12.30 to 2.30, uh, students, you have time to run and grab lunch and come back and have a good time with us today. So what might a review of today look like? Dave is hitting the lights and we'll let you know. Honestly, I feel like we're right there. I mean, my pastor performance record, my PPR is like 97. I mean, what do you want from me? I mean, I'm doing everything I can do. We get plenty of welcome cards in the buckets. Every week, we're just not converting those into members. I mean, bottom line, me and the worship pastor just need to get on the same page. He just got back from a week at a Bethel conference. So there's no excuse for what just happened on that stage. I mean, I, I'm just sitting there trying to go over my notes during worship, and this guy plays Everby in G and 10,000 Reasons in A. Like, wh why? I mean, we just got to be better. Baby dedication, I'll be honest with you, it was a disaster. I mean, I'm out there trying to guess at the pronunciation of these names. It sounds normal. O-L-I-V-I-A. Oh, your daughter Olivia is so beautiful. It's Olivia. I mean, who, who are these parents? Bottom line, our female vocalists just have to get better. Like, if we want to compete with the elevations and the north points, we just can't keep putting this product on the stage week after week. I mean, they just don't have the range to do some of these songs. I mean, they're trying to do Carrie Joe, but it's just, it's just, it's not working. I'm like, Revelation song? Are you serious? Like, I'm having a revelation listening to you. You're going to be singing to the youth group on Wednesday. I mean... Possession is key, you know, and we preach this to our guys every week. We had to recruit a fourth usher from the lobby right before sermon, and he, you saw it, I mean, he fumbled the offering plate. You can't expect to have turnovers like that every week and still be successful. Nothing to add. Have a great day. Table.